Hello, and welcome to another architecture podcast. In each episode, I talk to a leading architect about an amazing home that they have designed. By focusing on one project in detail, the podcast offers an insight into the influences behind the design and how some of the best architects from around the world have created an inspirational home. I'm your host, George Bradley. I'm an architect and a director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. I love designing homes myself, and this podcast is a great way for me to share my curiosity and enthusiasm for residential architecture. I kickstart the new 2023 season with a banger. I am joined by Tom Kundig, the co-founder of Seattle-based practice Olsen Kundig, arguably one of the most renowned studios designing residential homes in the world today. It's a real privilege to have Tom on the show. In a slight twist on previous episodes, we discussed two houses instead of one. The first is Costa Rica Treehouse, a property built entirely out of locally harvested teak wood. It is inspired by the jungle of its densely forested site on the Pacific coast and rises above the tree canopy to provide views of the surf at nearby Playa Hermosa Beach. The second is Rio House, a steel and glass box that hovers above the land, supported by two concrete piers. The property provides a discreet hideaway for the owner couple to retreat from the distractions of city life. The elevated living space provides spectacular views of Rio de Janeiro, beyond it the sea, and also the famous Christ the Redeemer statue. In the interview, we discuss the similar and contrasting themes across the two projects. Both homes are elevated from the ground, designed to respond passively to their environments and very open to the elements, yet both are totally unique to their context and to their owners. If you would like to explore the projects before or after listening to the episode, pictures and links to the architect can be found on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening and it's good to be back. Hi, Tom, and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. Oh, thanks, George. Looking forward to it. Well, it's, it's a real privilege to, to have you on. And um, as a lot of people know, as a studio, I mean, there's so much to choose from in terms of houses that you designed. And maybe partly that's the reason why we haven't even picked one. We've decided to go for two, which is slightly different to um, usual episodes. Um, but what's really exciting about what we're going to be talking about today, we're going to be talking about um, Costa Rica Treehouse mm-hmm. and Rio House. Um, and what's great about these projects is they're they're very similar in many um, respects. There's a, there's a lot of similarities, um, but also then very sort of contrasting approaches. Um, but one of the kind of key things um, with Olsen Kundig is it, your your studio was founded on was that inspiring surroundings have a positive effect on people's lives. Uh, I can't think of two better projects to to talk about really in terms of um, a home, a place to to live, a place to stay, and and how those surroundings can positively positively impact those occupants um maybe you could tell us a little bit about these these two maybe we could locate the listener in these wonderful costa rica and brazil uh, locations yeah well there are two extraordinary uh, places and <clears throat> your your question is uh, implying something that's super important for us and that's just the context of wherever you do these buildings and hopefully that comes out in the podcast today that 
some ways they have some similar grounding uh, because a client comes to me because of a DNA or whatever they recognize, but they end up in different places. And that has a mm-hmm. lot to do with um, the context of the landscape, of course. We'll talk about that in a second here, but also the context of the client because the client's <clears throat> DNA or dr- drivers or their their strategy of what they're thinking about uh, can be can be quite a bit different. And in this case, that's what's interesting. I think the the two uh, projects are super interesting because in some ways, and I'm overstating this, uh, Brazil or Rio, Rio de Janeiro, just up on the side of, of the hills above Rio de Janeiro, kind of a fantastic place right up against the big park, um, has shares some similar uh, climate uh, conditions as uh, Costa Rica treehouse, which is on the beach now. Mm-hmm. So already you're talking about something that's maybe in terms of latitude location has some similarities, but in terms of elevation above the beach has some dissimilarities, uh, which are, which led to some of the design strategies. Mm-hmm. And are these, are these people that are coming to you then with the, asking about these houses do they already have a location in mind or is that all kind of part of the process as well well that's actually a really good question because sometimes we work on relatively large parcels of of property especially if it's in the rural um, situation Um, just jumping to a side issue is that context to me is not just rural or land or climate or um, uh, uh, natural landscape it's also the cultural landscape as a city landscape. So those obviously have huge influences. I would say that's an important context as a, a natural landscape, if that makes sense. A, a city landscape is as important as a uh, natural landscape. In this case, it's two natural landscapes. And uh, both parcels are large enough that they could be located in different places. But the interesting thing thing about and kind of thankfully George in this in both cases there was a natural instinct to locate it more or less both of them more or less in the spots that we we chose uh, mm-hmm. that's not always the case in a relatively large landscape sometimes you can spend quite a few hours trying to understand the advantages of different locations um, wind patterns uh, sun patterns vegetation um, all sorts of uh, 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 vectors, basically, mm-hmm. that, that would affect the design. But again, circling back, in this case, in both of these cases, relatively short order finding the right spot. And what was it about these places? What was kind of unique about each of these sites that, that enabled that kind of response? So if, um, especially in a, in a natural landscape, um, you do try to um, – understand sort of the na- the natural um, aspects of both uh, of, the, of the properties. And if there's, for most architects, I would say, if there's an instinct about where to locate a, um, a home or a shelter, uh, especially a small shelter or a small home, because that's, that's what both of these are, where you really feel that landscape, you're, you're looking for the yin and yang of that, that landscape. In other words, maybe first instinct is big view, big air, um, which is natural, but um, 
you're also looking for those nuanced views, those um, intimate views, because in fact, in order to appreciate those big views, those big air views, you also want to balance that with the nuanced views, the intimate views, the the micro, the nano views. So weirdly, um, I will say to uh, a client, weirdly, you might find that your, I'm just making this up, your little Zen garden might ultimately become more impactful for your everyday life in that building than the big view. In other words, mm-hmm. um, Sometimes I use the term, it's like listening to Wagner for four and a half hours. Uh, after a while, you've had enough of Wagner. <laughs> you want to listen to something a little quieter maybe to sort of balance that, uh, that balance that noise. So there's this term, and I'm sure I'm not um, describing it scientifically, but there's the ecotone line, which is that line between the forest or the, uh, the refuge uh, and then the meadow or the the big view, and that's where animals will hang out, and that's where we feel comfortable as animals, uh, is because we have the prospect of seeing out. It's a defensive move. We can see out, mm-hmm. see things that are maybe sneaking up on us, or we can see food, whatever. And so it's instinctual. It's part of our genetic rumblings. But then our back, where our eyes aren't, is the forest, is the cliff, is the sort of what we sometimes refer to as the gunslinger's corner where you're sort of backing up into something that feels more protective and you can hide in. So mm-hmm. ideally, apologies for the long answer, ideally you're trying to find that that sort of ecotone line on the piece of property where you can sort of harvest those nano quiet views and also, of course, um, embrace those uh, big, large large views. And in both both places, um, that's what we were looking for, that balance between um, uh, the micro and the macro. So both these places, they, the big views, uh, you can see coast from both of them, can you? I, th- mm-hmm. I imagine the Rio one is fairly coastal still, albeit slightly further back. Um, and then the terrain is quite steep on both these sites, right? It's quite a rugged uh, terrain. So these houses are set back they kind of have their back to steep yep. steep hills or their side to the steep hills. That's exactly right. And how how are you doing this? Are these a case of sort of meeting these clients and then visiting this site with them or, or on your own or as a team? How, how do you start kind of gauging these responses? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. It just doesn't work unless you visit the sites, sites mm-hmm. and spend a bit of time um, with, the, with the clients on the site. Um, and again, it's almost instinctual. It's not not necessarily a quantitative scientific sort of system, although maybe it could be. Um, really, you're you're uh, walking with the client and getting a sense of their instinct and your own instinct. What's interesting uh, about that question, because both properties were very well known by both clients, right? Um, they had spent quite a bit of time on the site, so they had. <clears throat> a lot more sort of experience data for the site, <clears throat> mm-hmm. which of course brings terrific um, information to to me if I'm in conversation with them. But what's sometimes helpful is to have an outsider come in without the baggage of experience, if that makes sense, and sees it with fresh eyes 
And and then you have this conversation, which is a really fascinating conversation. They see things you don't see, and and maybe you see things that that they don't see. And, and again, that's where you're you're balancing between um, experience and fresh and uh, fresh mm-hmm. uh, uh, fresh eye. Were there any things here that they they were bringing that you didn't see yourself from, from their experience? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it, in my career, there's been an interesting sort of. Uh, uh, evolution where my background is really the mountains and the high desert. That's where I grew up. That's where I spent my time. And that was, that's my, my home in a sense. Uh, so for me to be involved in all of a sudden these semi-tropic, tropic, uh, beach, um, uh, uh, environments was, uh, really interesting. And, um, and it was, I, I came with fresh eyes in a sense because I, all of a sudden I, I I was in a in a foreign place with a foreign sort of cli- climatic um, conditions. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of that, maybe eighty percent of that, you can figure out pretty quickly um, when you experience a site. But there are always nuances um, uh, that come with particular idiosyncratic sites. So in Rio, as an example, born and raised in Rio de Janeiro, the client spent a lot of time on the site. And it was very clear to them how the humidity of Rio up against, you know, up above the beach, up against the jungle really worked and how it um, affected the experience of the house. In other words, they instinctually wanted a sig- not a significant but a, a an interesting gap between the density of this jungle which is heavy heavily dense uh, behind and the house itself so it's sort of freestanding in a sense mm-hmm. and that was very clear so the air circulation uh, would work its way around the building and then I proposed under the building which is a, a tradition um, in semi-tropics and they 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 love that idea for a, a, a few reasons, but uh, began to sort of understand how we might inhabit this place. But mm. and I was just using one example. They brought up something that I wouldn't have understood the the nuance of the humidity uh, and the um, in, on on the site. Costa Rica yeah. very similar. Knew the site really well and understood that. Um, the humidity in this particular area is more or less down on the uh, ground level. And really what you're trying to do is get into the trees and almost in the canopy. And then you get the – and obviously onshore on offshore breezes are, are maybe obvious to anybody. But how that really worked on that, on that site with the humidity and the uh, temperature – uh, conditions of the natural landscape was super interesting, and, mm-hmm. and again, it's a nuance level. and And if you propose a scheme that was relatively small and open, like Rio or excuse me, Costa Rica is, it's almost like a it's almost like a breathing uh, open uh, uh, shack in a sense that it just allowed the breezes to go in and out and through, uh, which is really typical for this particular landscape. Rio can be more stagnant, can be, you know, just tighter, dense humidity. And uh, those are the kind of um, experiences that are 
super impactful to mm-hmm. uh, the design that you come back to the owners with. And when you were there with them, were you sort of talking about this ecotone line as well with them? Is that part of? Oh yeah. You know, are you explaining it so beautifully to me? I can imagine you being on the site and and talking about it with them. Were, were you opening that their eyes to see this site in a very different way? Do you think from from your visit, initial visit? Uh, I, I hope so. Um, <laughs> although both clients are are uh, really uh, deeply sophisticated um, uh, thinkers. Um, especially mm-hmm. in the art and architecture world and music and poetry and kind of in, uh, both do, they don't know the families don't know each other but they have um real uh, deep uh, roots in the uh, in the arts maybe um you know i would i would bring something that was immediately obvious to them but maybe not initially obvious if that makes sense um mm-hmm. in particular um balanced light because art is so important to uh, both families. And I don't mean like museum uh, art, but as the sense of balanced light, um, you could understand as being clearly really important to both, to both families. And, you know, I talk about North blue light or with South yellow light now in Rio, of course that's flip or, you know, it's, it, it changes, but that really in an ideal world, you're gathering light from all four sides. Um, three sides is, is good. Two sides is, um, okay. And you, and if you're smart about it, you can kind of balance it. Uh, one side is a little, a little more difficult. Yes. Okay. I mean, we've got, we're already picking on so many themes that I want to talk about with these houses. Um, I'm just thinking for them, for the listener's point of view, I think the the overall sort of big, initial response or gesture of these homes is that they're both elevated homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you've started already touching upon the climatic conditions that have maybe influenced that. Um, but what I think is quite interesting between Rio and between Costa Rica is that both of the, these homes are elevated off the ground, but in slightly different ways. So I'd describe Rio as a more horizontal pavilion type house yep. and and Costa Rica more like a tree house. It's tight. It's it's room by room stacked on top of each other over three, four floors. Um could you tell me a little bit about those kind of initial um kind of schematic um responses? Yeah. Well again this is not rocket science. We're not inventing this. Um there's always been a tradition in um <clears throat> semi tropic uh, climates to elevate uh, the living floors. I mean, mm-hmm. we see elevations in um, true four season climates, like up in the Alps or something. And that has something, that driver is totally different than what's happening in the semi tropics. You're trying to get out of the snow in the Alps. In mm-hmm. the uh, semi tropic areas, if you go to Asia, uh, the history uh, of uh, the, um, the built history. You know, to get up off the ground and let those breezes come in and around and let the building breathe is just a natural way of naturally cooling um, the building. It also gets you out of um, the the critters that are in the jungles, you know, mm-hmm. um, the things that you probably don't really want to invite into your house um, easily. Um, so there's a bunch of uh, reasons for elevating a building off off the site. Now we've done projects that are in floodplains. We've done projects that are um, in uh, uh, you know snowy areas or um, uh, uh, even uh, drift snow drift areas. So mm-hmm. there's all sorts of reasons for 
elevating off off the ground. Uh, both have that um, driver. Uh, both have the animals that maybe you don't want to invite into your house. They both have the humidity down low. Um, and, it, and the more you raise, just it's incremental, but the more you raise um, the building, you're slowly getting yourself out of that heavy, uh, humid, um, animal-impacted area. The it, You're right. Uh, in fact, I believe... Well, I know on Rio, we looked at a more of a tower house uh, like Costa Rica, and we looked at um, this um, house that was stretched along horizontally. Uh, so, and then I believe in Costa Rica, I don't believe we looked at a horizontal um, scheme at that point. We did not study that because it was so obvious um, yeah. what was happening on that site. The tree house, the Costa Rica house, is literally – Coming out of the canopy, and because it's it was it's a uh, next to a great surfing beach, that's where the living areas are. That's where you see the surf. That's where you see the beach life. So that just immediately tells you, you know, you start at ground and you work your way up to the various levels uh, for mm-hmm. uh, uh, all sorts of natural. Reasons, but also uh, cultural reasons. Uh, want to see the surf, you know. Want to see yeah. what's happening out on the beach. Rio's a little bit different. Um, that is a house for a couple that the kids are grown. Um, the two of them are are um, you know just want to live the rest of their lives in this beautiful paradise in a very small house. They don't need much, and but it should be all on one level for the daily living. And then if they descend or ascend from the ground level, they're going down either into the garden, which is really important um, to this family. So unlike Costa Rica, which is just natural on the on the base level, the, in Rio, that is a very important garden. That's where the pools are. That's where the uh, lawns are for the kids and the grandkids, whatever. Uh, and that should breathe as a landscape all the way through the um, through the uh, through the through the scheme. Mm-hmm. Underneath that building, then, because of the bugs, uh, mosquitoes, whatever, moths at night, you can actually turn that into a screen porch. Either you know, or you can open it up, and it's completely open to that that garden level. So. Again, apologies for the long answer, but those are kind of the two real drivers of how to touch that ground and why you touch that ground. And those are very different uh, reasons between Costa Rica and and Rio House. Yes. And you mentioned about them being small houses. They are quite um, small houses. What was the sort of program here? Because they're they're essentially one-bedroom places as a principal bedroom, living space, um, kitchen. What what was that kind of agenda there from these clients and what they're looking for? They're not their main residences, are they? Yeah. um, In both cases, there's a a main residence either in in the town. It's more like a cabin. It's it's an escape escape to the the landscape. And Thankfully, you know, you work for clients that realize, no, I don't need a big house. If I'm, I'll sometimes say the best um, agenda for these these homes and these beautiful landscapes is little house, big landscape, and that's the reason mm-hmm. you're going there. You're not going there to <laughs> to be in a big house. In fact, in a big yeah. house, you sort of lose 
the sense of uh, that big landscape. So they were mm-hmm. both clearly um, they both clearly understood. Uh, no, this we're just trying to make uh, spatially the bare essentials for mm-hmm. you know maybe a kid or two, but uh, most or us you know one or two, and we just have what we need: uh, living, dining, kitchen, bath area, uh, and try to keep it as compact as possible. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about the sort of inside and the, the outside aspect. There's a really nice um, quote on your website from from you that says, "I've always been that kid who would rather be outside than inside." Yeah. Um, can you tell because they're very, very open homes. I can understand it from a, a climatic point of view, but there are also, I suppose, other aspects that you had to to think about here in terms of privacy, let's say, and security. Yeah. You know, uh, the history of that is uh, my dad was an architect and um, he was actually in, in uh, uh, sort of partnership and, and friendships as I was growing up with a, a number of terrific mid-century architects um, in my, my hometown. And when I, again, I was exactly right. I, I realized later in life that I just never was comfortable inside a house. I just wanted to be outside. I wanted to hike. I wanted to ski. I wanted to climb. Uh, I just, I wanted to play sports. Um, and the house almost felt claustrophobic. What was interesting is that the mid-century homes <laughs> had this promise of inside and outside, right? And so you had these big sheets of glass or, you know, um, that looked outside to inside. And I remember as a little kid thinking, I was, felt like I was in a terrarium. It was like there was a promise that there was an inside-outside <laughs> um, relationship. But the, it was basically I was in a, a terrarium either looking out into the garden or I was out in the garden looking back in into the house. And so my career has been largely about how do you open, you know, uh, these interiors to the exteriors. Now, <clears throat> I think in Japan – there are traditions of the shoji fasuma screens that you can really just um, open or you can clothe in a sense and unclothe these buildings, which I think is fantastic. Um, so again, it's been, you know, our ancestors have been doing this and I've been trying to do it, you know, in different ways that can actually, when they do seal uh, and you do need the air conditioning uh or conditioned air, whether it's heat or air conditioning, it is an efficient box. But when it's perfect and you just want the outside to breathe to the inside and vice versa, you can just sort of open these um, boxes. Mm-hmm. And so, how how have you done that here? Because there's a very there's a very strong element, I think, with each of them of kind of user control, which I imagine is extreme. Well, I, I know is extremely important from a psychological point of view as well of your interaction with. You're with a- absolutely right. Psychologically, um, to to not feel like you're cornered or not feel like you don't have options to move and open, I think, is really important um, in the house. If you look at the floor plans we do here in the office, you never really. You just can flow basically around the rooms and through the rooms. You never feel like you're dead ending. Um, mm-hmm. So you want to feel that way with the building also um, so that the windows uh, in the real house, which is an air-conditioned box above open area to the garden, big windows with with devices and gizmos that basically can open up 
the corners of the rooms uh, to the to the landscape. And when you, it's a nuance, but when you open up a corner of a room, you've actually op- you've gotten rid of the box in a sense, if that makes mm. sense. All of a sudden, your corner is gone, and the room just breathes as if it's a platform looking out into the into the landscape. <clears throat> Costa Rica was a little bit more of <clears throat> the client embracing the fact that I'm living in this paradise. You know, other than the bugs and we maybe have some screen protection or whatever, why wouldn't we just sort of live in those those changing temperatures? Hawaii is the same way <clears throat> where, the, I mean, the hum- – you know, you just you you become comfortable with the landscape, and there's maybe a couple of air conditioned spots um, in uh, Costa Rica. That's the bedrooms, um, as right. as uh, and we can all see this <clears throat> as global warming is raising the temperature. I think we're, um, we're um, even Seattle now is somewhat historic um, is now recently stressed a little bit with people um, needing air conditioning of some kind in an enclosed box, um, where traditionally that was not the case at all. And so, in terms of, because with the rear house, you the mechanics of how you open these things as well are really kind of integral to the design i think there's a that's also a crossover theme in mm-hmm. in terms of the usability it's really sort of part of the design how have you done that because there's a mention i think again it's a quote on the website but about they're almost like fences on costa rica that kind of yeah. slide these sort of slats and things can you talk a little bit about your approach to, to designing that for both these homes well that and they really are different different strategies one is sort of a, a the costa rica is sort of a privacy but open breathing, skip stop, you know, um, relationship between the wood slats and the openings. So there's a sense of privacy, but complete breathing uh, air. There's no, there's no real um, air control between the inside and the outside, and you really feel like you're you're part of the outside. Uh, but there's privacy, some privacy control with the mm-hmm. skip stop um, lap siding. Rio is is um, literally um, a box that can be opened like a butterfly with uh, these devices that can move relatively heavy things. And as, as we all know, glass and steel windows are, are heavy. So how do you make it um, uh, interesting? <laughs> but yeah. because this is also a client that wants to embrace the natural physics of the landscape, uh, right? Um, that's why you live in these um, big, beautiful landscapes. You want to live in, in them naturally. So if they move something heavy, they wanted to move it, um, or cumbersome, they wanted to move it in a way of using uh, natural, uh, 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 natural systems, which our bodies our natural systems, you know, the way mm-hmm. our arms and legs and everything move, and and these devices, which again, our ancestors have been doing before the grid showed up. They understood that you could make yourself stronger by actually attaching a tool at the end of your hand or at the end of your your foot, and 
um, using physics and seven um, uh, machines uh, schemes and just, you know, just being uh, smart about it, you can actually mm -hmm. increase um, your uh, your strength and your capabilities. Yeah. So in the ca in the case of Rio, it's it's a wheel, isn't mm -hmm. it? That you turn and these windows open up those corners yep. of that yep. big um, living room. So it's really sort of thinking about the physicality. There's also a historical aspect then to this for you, is there, mm -hmm. in terms of really being in tune um, with that with that aspect. What about the materiality then? Because they're very different. Yeah. That's where they're both strikingly different projects. Um, what was because I find I often find it very interesting how homes like this are what the decisions are behind the there's practical solutions to structure and material and local availability, but there's also climatic and design. What what makes what made the choices so different between these two houses, between this the timber of Costa Rica and the concrete and glass of um Rio? And, st and steel of Rio. And steel. Yeah. Um, which um was a little bit of a risk on the client's part, but they were interested in 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 taking that risk. Um uh, I mean, Rio or Brazil, I mean, there's a real concrete tradition there um, for, for all sorts of reasons. One is, it, you know, wood actually kind of rots in these hot, humid climates. And if you want to build something relatively permanent or low maintenance, um, there's more of a tradition of, of concrete and, and terracotta in, uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> in Brazil. And but they were interested in a in a building that was uh conceptually light if that makes sense i mean steel is still heavy but light in the sense that it wasn't a heavy object on the ground that it felt like um like a like a a bird or something would come down and and be relatively light or conceptually light on that landscape so they they saw the steel that i've been working with for years. And I, I come from a steel background as a kid. So steel for me was, a is, is a tough, obvious, rational material in certain conditions in a hot, humid uh, place. It's, you have to be very careful with the coatings and you have to be very careful with the assembly. Um, but if you are careful, you can have virtually um, uh, no maintenance uh, structure. So that was, that was the impulse that came from from the client. They they didn't really want to use something heavy like concrete. They wanted something to feel light on the landscape, um, and uh, uh, they wanted uh, something elevated. So it just you know it would be um, instinctually light, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And steel certainly is easier to cantilever and to um, elevate uh, above the ground. And they also didn't want to do it out of wood, uh, at least on the exterior, because of the maintenance of mm -hmm. of the wood. Again, back to that sense, that humidity, and, and it's pretty shocking, uh, the humidity that comes out of a jungle, even up, up at elevation, that yeah. if the wood was on the exterior, you can see the houses that have wood shutters or wood decks or whatever in the area. Yeah, very quickly, they're uh, stressed um, and uh, – probably beginning to uh, decompose. So that's the reason for the metal box. There. Yeah. In Rio, it was a completely different um, strategy. And that's where we uh, discovered from the client that um, this teak, I think you call it tika in uh, 
uh, Costa Rica, that's what I recall, uh, is an invasive uh, species uh, because it was planted as a plantation crop at one point. Right. So in Costa Rica, they're actually trying to remove it. Uh, and there's incentive to basically remove this <laughs> teak, which is kind of interesting. So all of a sudden we're looking at a wood that's does well in um, mm. high humidity situations. So we've got a material that's light, it's local, it resists um, decomposition in these situations, and it was uh, virtually free um, as a material. But of course, you have to uh, cut it and mill it and make it into p parts and pieces. But so totally different agendas and material agendas and totally different uh, 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 sort of uh, spirit, uh, aesthetic kind of spirit. Yeah. And aesthetically, though, it, it generates very different buildings. You've totally. got the sort of smooth, flat plains of the Rio House and the texture and the rhythm of Costa Rica. Is, is that purely a kind of direct functional response to the the way these are built or you know are there any overlays that you kind of came into that uh overlay yeah I, I it is a direct response to the situation it's it's contextual you uh, these are the these are the 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 discovered situations and then you mm -hmm. um want to respond appropriately um so you're not uh overstressing a material choice having the material do something it shouldn't be doing mm -hmm. um and you're responsive to what the client is is looking for mm -hmm. um yeah it, i was finding it interesting with, with houses like this it's you know it, it can sound so sort of simple like what well, every choice was the obvious choice because this has led to this that led to this and then it results in these yeah. beautiful buildings but it is those laying those foundations for those choices and seeing that route that's probably the key secret right absolutely yeah and yeah. i mean it it's not always it, it's not a, a linear necessarily yeah. a linear easy path um i mean all designers get misdirected you know by either overthinking or underthinking a situation um i think we all know that when something is working it's like listening to music it mm -hmm. you know you just know oof that's right. But yeah. um, we've all made misdirects um, based on either incomplete or misdirected information. What about these projects then in terms of, was there a natural linear path on each of them? Or were there, were there points where there was a sort of divergent aspect or challenge you know, that kind of knocks on, it off? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I'm, my memory is that uh, instinctually it, that these both started – um, solid. I think mm. the the uh, uh, the divergent paths sometimes would happen, uh, sort of maybe during the design development, during the technical uh, work. In other words, the concepts were felt really great in both cases, even though they're completely different sort of paths, mm -hmm. or, uh, at least material paths. But um, all the nuance in the iterative process of of design. Uh, certainly we had, um, studies or directions that didn't work and we brought them back, but, um, no, I think, uh, both felt really strong and mm -hmm. here's what I really, um, what I enjoy about our business, uh, and the business I'm, I'm privileged to, to work in, 
Um, I don't know if you were to look at those buildings without the name of the firm attached, you would know that it came from the same firm. And that, if that's true, because I'm too deep in it, right? I can see, mm-hmm. you know, there's um, there are design agendas that overlap. But I'd be really curious if if uh, you didn't have the name of the firm uh, associated with it, if you would immediately recognize that it came from the same firm. And mm-hmm. if that's true, uh, that's uh, 100% perfect. Mm. It's a direct response then to individuals and to a different location. Yeah. Um, I don't. I, I want to talk about sustainability on these projects, but I don't want to talk about sustainability because it's as a word. It's kind of particularly when we're looking at these two homes that we've touched on so many things about sort of passive design and about the materials, and it's it's a holistic um, it's a holistic thing. But in terms of how they sit on the earth, so how they come out of the ground, they're very kind of. They're quite light mm-hmm. buildings in terms of, and they're vo- both very different. It being in a very sort of literal sense, the treehouse is a treehouse, and it, it's it comes out on stilts. What I love with the rear house is it's these concrete pillars that form the chimneys that that this pavilion sits on. How important was how then these were rooted into the ground and how the landscape was below and to you? Ooh, yeah. Well, that, and, that, I, and I'm going to say, actually, so that's a question in a wider context as well of how they sit materially on the earth as well in terms of what they've used and and, and what they consume and, and what was considered there. Ooh, it's a sort of double question. Yeah, no, uh, of course, it's uh, – I'm not even sure uh, we all know uh, the clear, coherent answer. I think all of us in the profession uh, talk about embodied energy and talk about – a sustainability, um, I sometimes think, yeah, I kind of agree with you, the word sustainability, it, it, it just doesn't sit right. It's, a, it's about, um, it's like our ancestors. So, well, well, sometimes we'll use the term uh, in our office, well, what would a farmer do? Because a farmer is trying to mm. think about something really rationally. Um, and then for me, that's modern architecture was an architecture that was unadorned, that was rational, that was, in a, in a sense, simple um, to be uh, effective. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to use the word cost-effective because that, that's a loaded word, but effective. And um, both these projects are small. And, you know, if <clears throat> people ask me, well, what's the best – um, sustainability strategy. So build small, um, mm. as small as you can. <clears throat> um, because the materials you're going to use still have embodied um, energy. I mean, concrete has embodied um, energy. Of course, steel does. Uh, wood even does. I mean, if wood deteriorates or rots or whatever, then the carbon is re-released into the into the atmosphere. And so sometimes the mystery to me is as well, how do you sort of balance what's the rational choice between concrete, steel, glass, wood, brick, you know, and the embodied energy of all of those materials. And I'm not sure we completely have the answer. Some people would say, yes, we do have the answer, Tom. That's, um, yeah, we know exactly, but, uh, 
Pliny Fisk out of Texas. I mean, he was he was terrific. And, you know, his whole agenda um, was, well, okay, you build something out of wood and has low embodied energy, but what happens when it rots? What happens? And if you paint it, you know, are you really including over the 100-year lifespan? Are you really including every time somebody comes out with a bucket of paint and paints it and drives and <clears throat> it gets really complex really quickly? Where concrete has a huge embodied energy initially, but concrete is around for 200 years and probably doesn't really need any maintenance um, if it's done correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure I know the the complete um, answer on those questions. And th- that's where, um, you know, what would a farmer do? Well, um, a farmer is trying to farm and they're trying to think of how can I build this thing rationally? I'll use the wood that's on my property and use the stone on my property and I'm, it's right there. I don't have to go get it. Um, and mm. I, and I make this thing and, um, and I make it small because I need to, or big enough to function for the animals or for the family or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. and that, I don't know if I'm completely answering your question, but it's sort of a rational, um, thought process. Um, yeah. Were there any, um, external factors here like was it were there aspects that were important to the clients or uh you know w- one thing i kind of noted is that you know costa rica they're really aiming to become a carbon neutral country yeah. was there anything there that was from a sort of government level as well that impacts what you could do in these locations it's an interesting question because no not really <clears throat> and right. what's interesting is um it's conceivable um probably risking this a little bit, <clears throat> it's conceivable that um, in situations where there are no real sort of heavy overlaying governmental controls, you might even be um, developing, a, uh, and if you're smart about it, a, a, a more sustainable um, structure because you're, you're, you're not relying on the ordinary. You're, you're mm. trying to think about the extraordinary. And here you have a client that – in Costa Rica that they don't want to enclose. The only rooms they want to enclose in any way are the bedrooms. And they just have these little air conditioners. I don't know what the, mm. and, and we have solar panels. So good, net zero. Yeah. Uh, uh, in Costa Rica. Yeah. There's no, I mean, excuse me, in Rio, there's, there were no, that I recall real strong um, environmental, um, uh, strategy, I mean, uh, uh, governmental, um, agendas, but that's a, that's a very, that client was very clearly, they wanted a, uh, uh, basically a, uh, a net zero or more or better, um, structure. And mm. that's the way we approached it. So it really sounds like, you know, clients in both these cases had a very, pivotal role very engaged oh absolutely really kind of challenged you i'm guessing in terms of did you did you find these challenging in a in, in a creative way to an approach in these? oh yeah absolutely well here's here's it just occurred to me here's um both clients um because they um they're uh more comfortable in the landscape you know the conversations would be like well if it's hot um I just wear less clothing. And if it's cold, <laughs> I put on more clothing. And, you know, it's like Europe's strategy of comfort, cool, comfort, um, warm. That's so much. That's just fundamentally a much more 
energy efficient attitude is where you don't turn on the AC or you don't turn on the heater uh, until almost the last minute, in a sense. Mm. If everybody had that attitude, rather than just saying, I just need to be, live in a house that's 68 to 72 degrees, regardless of what's happening outside at all times, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, the energy models of those two strategies uh, and a small house or a small building, the energy models of those two um, strategies would be radically different, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it seems to me that you've given both these sets of clients, you've given them homes to evolve in themselves and yeah. to discover um, they're going to be able to learn to adapt to these climatic conditions, how they want to use them and adapt those buildings and the same with views as well. Like they've, you know, particularly Costa Rica, they've got three levels of different view tree canopy and, um, and seeing, seeing the beach. You're making Um, a really good point, George. Uh, I, you know, I used to, I still say it occasionally. Um, if the house, um, the house is supposed to, the home, the shelter is supposed to get better with time. Um, the more you live in it, the more it's like an, uh, old, pair of shoes or something is get more comfortable. It gets a little more patina to it. It ages gracefully. I actually think the aging process is, is really interesting. In fact, there were, um, sometimes I get asked about design competitions and I I know this is controversial, but I, I just sort of speculate that what if design competitions were limited to only buildings that were at least 10 years old and, because within 10 years, you begin to understand how these buildings function, how they sort of age. Do they actually get better with time? Because really, architecture is around for uh, – the buildings we do are supposed to be around for 100 to 200 years. So mm. that's, a, that's a lifespan. That's a long – a couple of life, – you know, that's a long mm. lifespan. And um, uh, some of the strongest architecture that I've uh, experienced is – uh, the architecture that has uh, grown gracefully um, as it's as it's aged and and as people have used it. I mean, I'm an architect that actually likes to go back to houses and actually like to see the changes that clients make and the modifications and what they're thinking works and what doesn't work. And then I love it when they say, "Tom, I didn't believe you when you said it was supposed to get better with time," uh, and I thought it was kind of bs a little bit but uh it's true it mm. you learn more about it you learn more about how the sun comes through and the wind and the, um, the climate uh, affects it mm. i mean it should be an essential thing really to go back and visit oh, yeah. your own buildings that you've designed to, to learn these things because i'm sure there's loads of mistakes to, to learn oh, all the yeah. time on, on these homes i've certainly made um, mine <laughs> That's that would be another podcast episode, I'm sure. <laughs> Do, but has, has it been long enough yet with these places to go back and um, and see any of that, or is that still a little bit too soon? No, it's not too soon. Uh, went back to uh, Costa Rica. We're doing some some work in Costa Rica. Um, went back a couple of months ago. Uh, drove by it. Um, it's um, uh, somebody else was in the house, so we couldn't really get into the house, mm-hmm. but. All the wood has now grayed out to this beautiful um, uh, um, teak, gray, aged uh, wood. God, it's just, I mean, it's better now, I think, than um, when the photographs were first taken. Because that's mm-hmm. the natural state, right? The natural state is to li- uh, let this um, age uh, with time. 
and just uh, almost blend in more with the color of the bark of the trees and uh, rather than standing out, almost disappear. So you can't even find it. In fact, I have to say we knew where it was, of course. But it was funny because until we kind of came right up on it, we didn't even see it. Um, it was uh, yeah. so well hidden in the in the forest. Rio, I haven't been back in Rio for a few years. Um, we're in contact with the owner, and they love it. It's their favorite place during the pandemic. That's where they basically lived um, uh, with the family, and uh, it just it gets better with time. But I haven't been back. So I'd love yeah. to get back to Brazil. Um, one last question on these houses. Um, which one's your favorite client? <laughs> no, that's a joke. That's a joke. You don't have to answer that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not going to answer that one. But, uh, you know, they were just, again, I just <clears throat> want to stress, uh, yeah, really a good building doesn't doesn't happen unless you're working with yeah. great clients and great contractors. And, um you know that that's the case in mm-hmm. both of these uh, homes. It's just um, it's not like there isn't stress. It's not like there isn't uh, hard work, but it feels like you're on a you're on a team and you're working together mm. to make something extraordinary. Well, they're, they're both fantastic houses. Both a single podcast episode in their own right, um, and both so many details and things that we we won't have. We haven't got time to. Um, to delve into, but I definitely encourage visitors to sort of deep dive into some of the pictures I'll share on the website link. Um, but thanks, thanks so much for, for talking about them. I, th- I think it's been fascinating talking about the two, these two particularly. There's so, there's so many sort of overlaps. Um, but I'm going to now ask you three questions that I ask all my guests, Tom. Um, and the first one is what is the one thing that really annoys you in your own home? <laughs> See, I thought that was such a great question. Um, <laughs> and it took me, um, Okay, I've never been asked that question. And uh, we actually did redo our house significantly. I mean, it's it, we call it the hot rod house because basically we took a a really crappy car, basically, and, and made it into something um, that um, we've lived in now for 20 years. So yeah. there are those moments in everybody's career where you think you're really clever and you um, – uh, you follow through on that clever idea, and which I, which I did, and I have to deal with this every day. And it's very simply, it's our entry door. Um, if you if you know what a mortise lock is, a mortise lock basically goes into the door, and um, and that's where the door lever is and whatever. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting because a mortise lock is actually kind of interesting to look at the way it works because all the mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be interesting to take that mortise and put it in the jam, and it's a steel jam, so you can see the mortise, you can see the little handle on it, uh, whatever. And so you open up the the mortise, and you can see all the things working, and then you pull on the door to open it up. Okay. <laughs> if If I would have followed through a little more carefully that every day of my life when I've got stuff in my arms or hands, I've got a briefcase or or a, a bag or a pack or whatever, I've got to sort of like scrunch up and put everything on my shoulders or whatever because I've got to take one hand and open the door and the other hand – or open the lock and the other hand to open the door. And <laughs> I deal with that every day and it's, and it's annoying. 
And well, there's a note to all future clients. Um, if Tom starts suggesting an exposed mortise lock. Not a good idea. Knock it down. No. Yeah. Uh-uh. <laughs> if, okay, if you could describe one house that you've visited that has really inspired you and tell me why. Well, I really lucked out. Years ago, I, I a house that completely uh, sort of changed my, uh, say, stu- as a student, changed maybe my focus as an architect, uh, where all of a sudden I realized in the photographs, uh, this is a place that, for whatever reason, um, rang true. And <clears throat> that was uh, uh, Maison de Verre, Chiro's Paris house. And I lucked out because I get a phone call out of the blue uh, from the owner of Maison de Verre years ago, uh, wanting to me to work on a heli-ski uh, operation up in Alaska. Now, I used to live in Alaska. I used to heli- a little bit of heli skiing. I was a mountain climber. I actually thought it was kind of a joke. Somebody was pulling my leg, you know, you know, giving me uh, an idea for a project that was a dream come true, but it was true. And then uh, the owner continued and said that, um, you know, that um, he was an architect junkie and he was buying um, projects around the world. And um, one of them he bought was Maison de Verre in, in Paris and wondered wow. if I wanted to come out. And, oh, man, you know, this is like one of those moments where you just can't even believe you're hearing it. And you just really think, yeah. no, this is like a dream. It's going to all come crashing uh, closed as I wake up. But, no, I was able to visit uh, Maison de Verre and uh, it did not uh, disappoint. Yeah. Fantastic. I've I've never visited, but it's one train ride away from me, so yeah. I should. Oh, it's 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 fantastic, and of course the yeah. story of Maison de Verre and why those columns exist inside this building because the the old lady that lived above in the apartment above wouldn't move, so they had to support her. Girl. I mean, it's just it's, it's this fantastic uh, uh, kind of my kind of architecture where you're kind of like playing billiards. You're, Skiing the trees, I always say. You're kind of dealing with all these uh, changes. Um, it's not a linear process. Sorry about that. Uh, it's yeah. not a linear process. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, and it winds up sort of where you might not expect it, but it's stronger because, because of that. Yes. Um, and then if we end, then if you could choose uh, any designer to design you a new home, who would you choose? That was a, that one was more difficult because um, I've, I've worked with not worked with but I'm I'm certainly um, friends with with a number of uh, terrific architects and really honored uh, to get to know Glenn Merkett um, and of course talk about somebody that's made a a career out of um, the shelter and uh, has affected uh, the world. Um, with with the architecture of the small, um, I mean, uh, uh, we visited uh, Mount Wilson. The house, I think it's called Mount Wilson. Uh, and when I walked in, I turned around to Glenn. I said, "Well, finally arrived at the house that um, sailed a thousand derivatives." <laughs> because there's, I mean, it's so iconic in a sense that you know the 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 simple, rational, modern response to. Uh, the situation, the climate, 
I thought, you know, it's it's a masterpiece, and yeah. and, another, and of many masterpieces. But the um, I've always been a uh, huge fan of Zumtor, um, and because I, my background is Swiss, I'm a Swiss citizen, and, um, and not from that particular area, but um, I. Even in photographs, I could recognize. I don't know if it's the mountain background or the mountain sensibility. I I, I don't know, but there's something about the, uh, the architecture that he's been doing that uh, uh, just speaks at an instinctual level uh, with mm-hmm. me. And uh, of course, visited uh, a number of his um, projects in in around uh, Coor, his hometown, and up to Vols, and, and it's just it. I mean, it's. Uh, I'm left speechless, and uh, mm. that would be that would be, I think, uh, my choice to work with a yeah with a house. Yeah, fantastic choice. Well, Tom, uh, thank you very much. I really, really enjoyed that interview, and thank you for giving your time. Well, thank you, George. It's been an honor, and uh, um, hope to meet. Would love to. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to find out more about Tom and his studio Olsen Kundig, then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com or visit the Instagram page to see the work of all my guests. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, then please leave a review. It really helps other people to find the podcast. In episode 22 of the podcast, I featured another home designed by an American studio, the Tucson Mountain Retreat by Dust. If you'd like to listen to that episode, you can play it via the episodes link on anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode, and thanks again for listening.